Well, you should have a set of notes before you. And again, we're looking at character in the midst of crisis. This book that uh, is seldom studied, but is so significant. And let me just kind of give you a quick overview on one slide. <laughs> the theology of the book is that God is sovereign. You're going to see that throughout this book. Even when things seem to be in disarray, God is ultimately in charge. <clears throat> Some people refer to the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament as the years of silence. And, and I would argue God is not silent. In fact, I, I, it's nothing more. I love teaching the intertestament period and showing how God's hand is just moving and, and orchestrating the events. And you see a little of that here. The people of God are called to remain faithful. And the third point that we're going to see is God's restoration is still yet to come. And that's what's going to be laid out before. So if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. This is where we left off before COVID. Last week we had a bit of a review. And again, those notes are available to you on that website. If you want to go there, you can pull those uh, uh, down and download them or do whatever you need to do. I, I had in the opening that heroes are often born out of adversity, but I would argue the proof of their character is revealed in prosperity. <laughs> A while back, Sports Illustrated <clears throat> estimated that 78% of NFL players are either bankrupt or under financial stress within two years of retirement. And 60% of the NBA players are broke within five years of leaving the sport. They rise to the top and then crash, right? Well, that's the, I, <laughs> we see that time and time again, not just in sports, but in the secular world as well. And Nehemiah is an exception to the rule. He rises to the ranks and he continues to show unbelievable godliness. In, in, and I want you to see that today. And we're at 514 is where we are. Now let me paint the scene. If you remember, early part of 5, things are rotten. I mean, he's, he's helped building this wall, rebuilding a wall around the city of Jerusalem. This is during the time of the Persians. We'll look at this in a minute. And as he's doing that, there's also reform needed among the Jewish people. Things have been corrupt, and so he has to address that. And that was addressed earlier in 5. In 5.14 it says, From the day that I, and this is Nehemiah, was appointed governor in the land of Judah, that is from the 12th, the 20th year until the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. And you're going, what in the world? That's a 12-year span. Now let me just show you. Again, if you remember this chart, if you were with us before, Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C. Jews start to return. The first thing they do is build the temple under Zerubbabel. And what do we know about the temple compared to the Solomonic? It ain't what she used to be, but at least we got a temple, right? Uh, and then we get to Nehemiah. Ezra comes back to the land with reforms. And now Nehemiah is returning. And Artaxerxes, this is a relief of, of Artaxerxes. This is one of the coins that he minted. And I love this. Um, these coins are about the size of the end of your pinky. <clears throat> They're called Yahud coins. They were minted by the Jews that, during the Persian period in the land of Israel. Uh, they used to think they were extremely rare coins. Now they're finding a lot of them. It's because they were so small. People didn't know at first what they were looking at. But um, so we have historical evidence of this time frame. 
And Nehemiah states, going back to the text, that he, he reigned his first, he serves as governor two different terms. In chapter 13, we'll meet a second term. This is his first term. And again, it's for 12 years. Uh, neither I nor my relatives ate the food allotted to the governor. Now watch what he says. Remember, well, we get to this in a minute. But the former governors who preceded me had burdened the people and had taken food and wine from them in addition to 40 shekels of silver. Now, we don't know what that is referring to. You may have an English version that mentions it's daily. Does anyone have the word daily? 40 shekels? Yeah. Micah, you do? What, yeah, what version do you have? ESV. Um, there are many, this is the Net Bible, and I, I probably lean more towards the Net Bible. It, it's vague. It would appear to be uh, some type of sum of money over a period of time. And it, it, whatever the case, it's a lot. <laughs> That's what you're to get, gather when you read the text. Their associates were domineering over the people, but I did not behave in this way due to, and here's the kicker, my fear of God. Do you remember when he put his finger up in the face of the leaders of the Jewish people earlier in five? <clears throat> Go back and look at this. He says in verse nine, then I said, the thing that you are doing is wrong. Should you not conduct yourselves, what? In the fear of God. This is what should be driving your leadership. And if you're leading in the home, if you're, you're leading at work, as followers of Jesus, it should be the fear of God that's driving you, I would argue. And Nehemiah says, it's due to my fear of God that I did not behave like my predecessors. Verse 16, I gave myself to this work on the wall without even purchasing a field. All of my associates were gathering there for the week, for the work. There were 150 Jews, he states, and officials who dined with me in addition to those who came to us from the Gentiles. So you have foreign diplomats. You got 150 bigwigs, not to mention family and servants that he's feeding. And it says, every day one ox, six select sheep, and some birds were prepared for me. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. With this, I did not acquire or require the food allotted to the governor, for the work was demanding on the people. So that's repeated. It's bookend in this little section. And then he says, please remember me for good, oh my God, for all that I have done for this people. And that prayer is going to be echoed several times as we journey through. This is the first of several of those prayers throughout the book. Well, looking at the notes, let's just look at this a little bit. Again, I give you the time frame of who we're dealing with. And that, again, is that he is the governor during the time of Artaxerxes. And as we see from the text, Nehemiah says, I did not behave like my predecessors. And this is the question I have. How did Nehemiah's predecessors govern? You have a section to write this in. What did you see in the text? How did they govern? Yeah, they were entitled to taxes. And, and he says, I didn't do that. So you can write that down. All right. And, and often in this time frame, the governors under the Persian Empire would tax and the governor's servants would also tax. <laughs> and some, the taxes were extremely high, as you might expect. What else do we find that the governors would do? And specifically with tax, they'd take the 40 shekels. What else did they take? 
this, a silver, yeah, what else? Yeah, the food. Jump back to the five. Look at this. Earlier part of five. Verse one. There was a great outcry from the people. There were those who said, Our sons and daughters, we are many, we may obtain grain in order to eat. I mean, they're starving. There were others who said, We are putting up our fields and our vineyards and houses as collateral in order to obtain grain during the famine. So we know there's a famine going on. A lot of the men are working on the walls, so they're not working in the fields. That's an issue as well, right? And, and, and as a consequence, to pay the taxes, they're having to put their, their land, and as you see here in the text, even their children up as for slavery in order to pay the bills. And, and Nehemiah says, I, I didn't burden the people with this. When we talked about the 40 shekels, you can see this. But in that large paragraph down at the bottom, look at the last sentence, last couple. It says, Nehemiah recognized the danger of oppressing his people. Proverbs informs us that the one who oppresses the poor to gain his own increase and the one who gives to the rich both end up only in poverty. Uh, it's a biblical principle. And again, the implication, of course, is that these governors are not fearing the Lord. And we'll get to that in a minute. But look at Nehemiah's rule. Just, just the opposite of the governors, right? He and his associates did not eat the food allocated to them. He could have. That was his right as governor. But he said, I didn't do it because I understand they're oppressed. He did not lay heavy burdens on the people. He understood they already have heavy burdens. He did not take from their daily 40 shekels or however you want to render that. His servants did not lord it over the people, and he acquired no land, which we'll get to in a minute, because that's a huge implication there. But what he did do, he kept working on the wall. All those other governors, why didn't they work on a wall? And you say, well, that's because, you know, Persians didn't allow it. I don't buy it. Lame excuse. Why weren't they helping the people in the past if they were truly concerned? None of that was there. And the implication is, when you see here in the text, it says, due to my fear of God, what's the implication about the previous governors? They didn't fear God. Oops. Bummer. Speaking of which, there's some room to write. What does it mean to fear God? That thing is, that's as vague as, what does that mean? Fear God. Reverence. Okay, reverence. Let's just write a few down here. What else? No expectations. Reverence with no expectations. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't like that. Um, so, no offense. Uh, there is an expectation of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So, I'm going to change it. But yes, I understand what you're saying. There's, there's no... Help me out, like idea. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what else? It's order who sides your own. Yes, yes. Well, but when we're called as saints or followers of, of the Lord to fear him, what does that mean? Reverence? Ah, I like that word. Aw, obedience. Nice job. I don't know who said that one. Uh, the two go hand in hand, right? The, the whole idea of knowing God in the New Testament is not just cognitive, it's also effective. The two go hand in hand. And it's a heart and mind relationship. Okay, there's a heart and mind. We'll do that. 
Ah, uh, nice. Humility. Okay, a godly perspective. That's why you fear him. <laughs> Thank you. A desire of wisdom. I'm going to give you one. Worship. Awe and worship. Yeah, from that comes the fruit of the Spirit. If you can read my hand. No sense of entitlement. Good. A heart for service. Yeah, this idea is... It, it, turn the page. I got a definition from Kenneth Boa, who's done a lot on spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines. He writes this at the top of the page. To fear God is to nurture an attitude of awe and humility. Someone read that. Good job. Before him and to walk in radical dependence upon God in each area of life. The fear of the Lord is similar to the mindset of a subject before a powerful king. Uh, you know, Nehemiah understood that. He was a cupbearer to Artaxerxes. But he feared God more than he did at Artaxerxes. If you don't think that, read chapter 1 and 2, right? Again, and look at that. And then, so it is to be under a divine authority as one who will surely give an account. Fearing the Lord relates to trust, humility, teachability, servanthood, responsiveness, gratitude, and reliance on God. It's the exact opposite of autonomy and arrogance. Nehemiah has rose, risen from a cupbearer to the governor of Judah, <laughs> the time of the Persians. And he has all this authority from the king, endorsement to build this wall. Look at Nehemiah, right? If I'm correct, I think it's one of the only cities that's walled in the Persian Empire outside of the immediate Susa region. Right? This is really significant. <laughs> It could have gone to his head. And you and I all know individuals who are promoted and all of a sudden they start to shipwreck. They start to think their poopy doesn't smell, right? That's the idea. And Nehemiah is not there. And as you see under verse 16 of your notes on page 2, Nehemiah not only identifies what he did not do as governor, but what he does do. And look what he does do. And that is in verse 16. I gave myself to the work. There's a quote in your notes there by Gene Getz, and it's dynamite. He says, he, Nehemiah, was in Jerusalem to help the people, not to exploit them. He was there to exemplify the law of God, not to violate it. Remember when he hears that earlier in five, they've sold their kids to slavery? Uh, he blows a gasket. And then he was there to rebuild the wall, not to build a personal empire. Proof of that as well is seen here when it says in verse 16, he gave himself to the work of the, the wall without even purchasing a field. And that phrase is powerful because as I mentioned in your notes, what I think this is indicating is that he did not exploit the poor. He didn't give out loans knowing full well that they're not going to be able to pay the bills and so he ended up acquiring it from them. <laughs> And th that's not the case. I, I wrote down, he, he ensured the future of the city, not his own future. He didn't use his position for personal gain. He didn't look to what 
I mean, as he's building this wall, you know, that is a nice parcel of land. I want to make sure I get that. It has a great view over the Kidron Valley. <laughs> you don't see that with Nehemiah. And it's so easy, isn't it? When God has elevated you and, and think, well, you know, it's okay if I get this. This is part of it, you know. I've, I've done the work. None of that falls into Nehemiah. It's a constant focus on the Lord and the task set before him. Yeah, Kyle. Well, in that process, doesn't that really solidify and tell us his extreme trust in the Lord's provision? Yeah, it does. He didn't have to worry over it. He didn't look, I could, but you know what? God's going to provide. Great. I'm going to put that in my notes. I like that. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's no doubt. Extreme trust in the Lord. And understanding God will provide. I do the job that he set before me. Yeah. Is land inside the wall or outside the wall? The text doesn't tell us. So there's, there's still real estate within the walls just as, as there is outside. But nonetheless, I mean, if you look at the city of David even today, the land just south of it is nice and fertile because it's, it's close to the valley. You got the Hinnom Valley, the Kindred Valley. I mean, if, if you want a great place to put your crops, that would be a, a good location. Within the city walls, you got safety, security, and a great view. So, I mean, there's all a host of things that would, you know, prize real estate either side. I don't think really the text tells us. 17 and 18, again, we're told that there was 150 Jews and officials. Uh, he's providing for a ton of folk. <laughs> You're going to love this. I don't know. I found it uh, interesting. The U.S. government in 2019 estimated it cost $12.16 to pay an adult from the age of 18 to 50. All right? I won't tell you what they tell you when you get on beyond 50. But $12.16. So, using those numbers, if we multiply it times 150, we're looking at $1,824 a day that Nehemiah is spending. I know. But... Just humor me. Uh, imagine you're going to add your, your family and your servants. I mean, he's spending well over $2,000 a day. And that doesn't include the nice wine that he's getting every 10 days. So uh, you're talking a chunk of change out of his own pocket. So not only is he not acquiring what he shouldn't receive as governor, he's giving this to them. Right? A huge burden. I think about, you know, I was look, thinking through this. You got to get an ox and sheep daily. Now, sheep I can understand, but ox, that was very rare at this time frame. So, I don't know where he's obtaining his oxes, but his oxen. But um, you get the idea. One ox, six sheep, birds, and a partridge in a pear tree. All of this provided at his own expense. He's picking up the dime. Thoughts or questions on that? I, I, it's, it's huge. Not only is he trusting the Lord, he, he's providing for his people. Yeah. The origins of rebuilding the wall, had that been a decades long or years long or whatever desire on the part of those people that had not been fulfilled? You know, this wasn't some initiative we made back then, right? So was it something they talked about in their society? Well, walls provide security. Uh, they provide and, and um, identity, and, and so. Um, because my point is, is that 
is, you know, I'm, I'm going to use all my resources to do this because this is my thing. Well, th those walls, those ruins, had to be a continual reminder of their defeat. I remember going to Germany in 1991 to Leipzig. And at that time, you still, you go down some of the blocks and you see a house that was still deteriorated, destroyed from World War II. It had not been repaired. And you think, this is a, an albatross. This is something they're continually seeing as a reminder, you lost. Uh, and, and this is the idea, I think, as well with those walls being destroyed. <clears throat> and, and, and you see that in Nehemiah's prayer at the very beginning, right? Showing that... His people have been defeated. Things are in disarray. And so, no, I would argue this was continually desire to repair them. But how? You don't have the resources and you don't have permission from the Persian government. And worse yet, you've got neighbors who will slit your throat if you try it. So all of that comes into play when Nehemiah steps onto the scene. Well, as we stated in 19, he makes this prayer. And this prayer that we see is very significant because it's his desire for God's blessing. Personal blessing. And as I, I stated, while a leader might be able to maintain a facade of righteousness, I should say for a period of time before people... He cannot do it before an all-knowing God. And Nehemiah is amazing because he says, Lord, I'm an open book. This is what I've done. Uh, and bless me for it. He couldn't pray that if it wasn't true. <laughs> if he had his hand in the till, if he had taken a parcel of land or stuck it to a neighbor, no. He says, Lord, here I am. Bless me. Well, I have some principles that I want to just tease out of this in the relationship to leadership. Some of you are formally in a, a, a leadership role, others indirectly. Maybe it's through family, etc. But uh, some principles as I see based upon Nehemiah is number one, godly leadership embraces good stewardship. Nehemiah knew the task that was set before him. He did not waver. And I said individuals, we need individuals who are at strategic positions of influence who fear God. Uh, grateful for Micah and his role with the American family. Grateful for people like Brian standing on a street corner who are saying, no, I fear God and this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to waver. And many of the others in this room who are involved in parachurch or church ministries, thank you. Keep it up. Secondly, as we look at this, godly leadership entails caring for people. Caring for people. Turn to 1 Corinthians. If you remember, <clears throat> Paul pens this letter. He is not a happy camper. <laughs> he spent 18 months with these louses. They've not learned. And he pens this letter and he's hot to trot. It is not like Philippians. Philippians is the sweet little... Thank you. Not this sucker. And he gets to chapter 9 after he's taken out a paddle and spanked him a bit. And he continues indirectly in this scene. He says in 919, this is Paul speaking. For since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. To those free from the law, I become like one free 
in order to gain free from the law. It says in 22, to the weak I become weak in order to gain the weak. I have become all things to all people, so but all means I might save some. I do all these things because of the gospel so that I can be a participant in it. That's Nehemiah. Before the cross, right? Nehemiah says, I do all this because I fear God. Paul says the same thing. I do all this because I fear God and the, and the message of the gospel that needs to go forth. And godly leadership has a deep passion to care for people. Nehemiah did not run roughshod over his folk. He could have. He had the right to do it as governor. His predecessors did it. And all the more because of what he's doing for the city. He could say, I'm entitled to this. But he doesn't do it. All right? Here's another. Godly leadership, which falls under, really under caring for people. It's marked by generosity. Uh, greed is a leading factor in the demise of many individuals. Uh, there's a book. Uh, I can't think of the name. I... I can see his face. He wrote a book on greed as idolatry. And it's really an interesting book. And looking at the, at the New Testament. Blomberg in his book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, writes, The rich man in Luke 12 demonstrates an unrelenting, self-centered focus and an unmitigated accumulation of surplus goods with no thought for anyone else. Remember he's building bigger barns, bigger barns? Uh, and, and consequently, he, he, he has real problems. Scripture clearly teaches that the individual who is generous rather than greedy will be blessed. Are you known as a generous boss? <laughs> Are you known as a generous father or spouse if you're married? How are you known? Right? Um, those of us who maybe aren't bosses, but we work for individuals who are bosses, those that are generous, they stand out, don't they? I remember the one, you know, maybe it was a, a, a cup of coffee that the boss brought in. Here's coffee for everybody. Just being known as generous. That's Nehemiah. 150 he's furnishing food for, not to mention the foreign diplomats. Here's another. Godly leadership is marked by humility. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 indicates that if we honor the Lord with our wealth, then our barns will be completely filled and our vats will overflow. Pride solicits poverty, shame, and death, according to the book of Proverbs, and I would argue elsewhere in the New Testament. It's marked by an understanding. If you fear God, you realize, no, <laughs> someone mentioned this. This is the humility part that comes into play. I worked with an investor years ago, and we were putting together a corporate spiritual audit. He was using it for investment purposes because he said pride comes before a fall. And so his desire was, how do we assess companies on their spiritual barometer? How are they doing in the area of humility versus arrogance and so forth. It was very interesting. Uh, he's out, lives kind of outside the box, but uh, uh, this was one of the areas that he really was honing in on. How do you tell when a company's becoming arrogant? Jim Collins, Good to Great, How the Mighty Fall. Remember those books? Uh, same idea. Hubris, no one likes. And it's clear it's the demise of many. In godly leadership, 
such as Nehemiah understands, no, I'm under God. I fear him and him alone. Well, I'm starting to preach, so we'll move on. Godly leadership leads with integrity and transparency. I love this. Do I have any dentists in the room? I don't know if I have any dentists. Uh, the dental corporation has a new transparent campaign, but it's getting off on a slow start. If you can't read it, it says, this is going to hurt like crazy and I don't really care. <laughs> the dentist states, I think that's how my dentist responds. We won't go there. Uh, but uh, godly leadership leads with integrity and transparency. You know, Nehemiah is quick. Uh, we've already seen this in the first five chapters. He's quick to identify the people with them when it comes to areas of sin, right? He's, he's quick to indicate, yeah, there's, these are my weaknesses. These are areas that I need to improve on as he moves along. He, he's very direct. And as I mentioned there in your notes under Proverbs 11, the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the falseness of the treachery will destroy them. Mm. Proverbs 28, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Integrity and transparency it is the death knell, I would argue, of many pastors. <laughs> Careful, if you're in leadership, if you're in a ministry or parachurch ministry, admit your wrongs. Be quick to say, I'm sorry. Remember uh, when uh, my wife and I got married, I remember Rich, who, who married us, my former colleague, uh, he, he said, um, the only argument you and your wife should have is who's going to apologize first. <laughs> That's walking in integrity. It's walking in transparency, Right? And that's the idea here, an idea of godly leadership. The fr front page of your notes, there's a quote from Carlisle. He says, adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. It's not the difficult times that I often see people fall, it's when things are going well. And God is blessing and they're in charge and they've got, you know, kumbaya is being sung in the backdrop. Life is good. And someone takes the rug and pulls it out from under them. And it's usually themselves. <laughs> because they lack in these areas of leadership. And unlike Nehemiah, the fear of God wanes because they start believing their own press. And you know what? Maybe I am pretty good at what I do. Forgetting it's God's hand of grace upon their lives. Yeah, Jim. I think one thing nowadays, uh, what good leaders need is people who are speaking into their lives, just mm. other human beings, other co-leaders, you name it, but uh, to, to help us or help them, if there's in one of these areas that there's a crack, <coughs> we either may not see that ourselves or we don't want to see it ourselves. That's where other builders. That's really a good point, Jim. I, I uh, I told our elders at the church, I said, I don't want a group of yes men. <laughs> That's the last thing I need. Uh, my wife's got the two by four as well, but uh, I'd like to give you one as well because I need it. You know, we need to be held accountable. Uh, Satan I, loves secrecy. <laughs> he loves privacy. And that's part of, I think, godly leadership is saying, no, 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 I'm an open book. So if someone was to scan your computer today and was able to 
pull up the history that you destroyed would be shocked. <laughs> they could pull up your GPS and see where you've driven. They'd be shocked if they sat in your office and how you engage your employees and customers. Would they be shocked? Right? This is the idea. Nehemiah says, no, I fear God. And God, remember me because of my righteousness in, before you. That's it. Man, may that be our prayer, right? Father, indeed, that is our prayer. May, be we, may we be known as godly leaders similar to Nehemiah who are, are faithful in the task that you've given us. Lord, help us in our fear and awe of you. Not so we coil into a corner, but so that we understand in a healthy manner who we are before you, a holy and righteous God. Father, we need leaders across this land in all areas of discipline, not only in the church, who model this kind of leadership as Nehemiah. Duplicity should not be seen in the life of a believer. Arrogance needs to go out the window. Stinginess, greed should not be seen. But one who's caring for people while faithfully fulfilling the task that has been set before them. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this man almost 2,500 years ago who under the inspiration of the Spirit has allowed us to read his memoirs, these, this book, and, and, and to glean lessons of how we're to live for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with these men today. Some of them have heavy burdens, and I ask that you would just guide them, give them wisdom beyond their years, clarity of thought and speech as they engage other people. And may, Lord... At the end of the day, we can say we were faithful in serving you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.